If you haven't heard of Y Combinator, it is the Harvard of startup accelerators. WeatherCheck, based in Louisville, is the first ever Kentucky company to be admitted to the program. So this week, we're talking to Demetrius Gray, WeatherCheck's co-founder and CEO, about his journey to starting the company. You can't miss this one. Let's go. All right, welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. Nate Antetomaso up here in Chicago, Illinois. In Lexington, Kentucky, we have Logan Jones and Evan Knowles. How are you guys doing? Great, man. I'm great. And then in Louisville, Kentucky, we are all over the map today. We are happy to be joined by our guest, D. Gray, the co-founder and CEO of WeatherCheck. How are you doing, man? Man, I'm doing swell. Thank you for joining us this evening and and recording the podcast with us. It's always a pleasure, man. Always. Awesome. So Evan had gotten in contact with you um, to to get you to come on the podcast and talk about all the amazing stuff you're doing there out of Louisville. Evan, do you want to give a a little bit of a rundown of how you ran into D? Yeah, for sure. Let's go from there. Yeah, so I had seen um, on Twitter some posts about uh, WeatherCheck and Y Combinator. I had not heard of WeatherCheck previously. They actually came out of Awesome Inc.'s. Uh, they actually came through Awesome Inc.'s fellowship. So I, mm-hmm. um, you know, there were a few connected dots, and um, I'm obviously a big fan of Y Combinator and follow, um, you know, Paul Graham and um, that that whole group, um, and saw that they went through it, and uh, we actually just learned that they were the first Kentucky startup to go through that, which is amazing. Uh, and so I, I had to reach out. Uh, I actually jumped in your your DMs, D, uh, and reached out and said, "Hey, uh, we're working on a, a podcast, trying to highlight stories just like yours." And and here we are. Yeah, man, I appreciate you doing that, man. I, you know, like the things that are happening in Kentucky specifically are so legit. Um, there's some really really smart people hanging around. We got to tell everybody we can about it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So so we'll get into everything that's happening now in Kentucky and your YC experience and, and all of that kind of stuff. But let's start at the beginning, you know, kind of if you could give us a little high level overview of your background. We just went through it off the air before recording, but I think it's super interesting. The listeners should know kind of where you came from. Yeah, so um, I was adopted into a an entrepreneurial family uh, in Western Kentucky. My um, dad and grandfather um were in the oil and gas business, um, taking methane gas off the top of coal seams. And eventually they were able to sell their firm to um, uh, a larger oil and gas conglomerate. And, um, uh, you know, that's really where it all started. I grew up in a family where every dinner was about what's going on in the business. Mm -hmm. And so um, entrepreneurship, ironically, was secondary. I I did not come to uh, relish the oil and gas business. Um, as much as they did, but um, it was um, a really great sort of experience growing up, getting to see what it's like to have to make payroll for 40 and 50 people at a time and just the pressure sometimes that they were under, Mm -hmm. Um, but understanding that, um, you know, my my great-grandfather and grandfather were like really instrumental in helping me to understand that my ideas were valuable, Mm -hmm. Um, and so um, that's where it all kind of started. 
you know, I eventually went on to uh, the University of Louisville, um, got an accounting degree and uh, met my wife. And um, yeah, the rest is uh, kind of history at this point. Um, and really just have been experimenting ever since. Yeah. Are you a Cardinals fan if you went to Louisville? Well, you know, like I am like the, um, um, it's, you know, you've heard of the white man can't jump um, thing, the movie. <laughs> um, I'm like the black man that doesn't know sports um, <laughs> at all. So, so like I have, I, I'm, I'm, I love my alma mater a ton, but I yeah. don't really know that much about it, to be truthful. So, so, and that's what's interesting is I went to, to undergrad with some very notable um, WNBA athletes, NFL mm-hmm. and NBA athletes now. And I, I got nothing. (laughs) (laughs) We can keep doing the podcast then if you're not a Cardinals. Yeah. (laughs) Right. right. (laughs) So, uh, was entrepreneurship kind of always on your mind? Were you always looking for an idea to start or did did this just kind of come about and, you know, present itself as an opportunity that you had to chase? What was your mindset on entrepreneurship before you actually became one? I, I really always saw myself as a number two. Um, like, um, I really liked the idea of CFO and COO roles. Um, and that's really where I was positioning myself for. Um, to me, that was very, very appealing. Um, hence the accounting degree, hence the, you know, sort of operations background. And so um, it wasn't until um, I started to realize that I had an outsized insight um, in different areas of business. So I ran a um, very, very large roofing company um, that was based out of Bowling Green. So a $30 million a year company. Um, and I was the direct report to the two owners. And um, it was uh, an interesting sort of like process to go through and see, oh, wow, like I can actually think at a level that... Um, makes a lot of sense for me to be doing this on my own mm-hmm. um and so but i could still slide into a number two or number three role today and be completely comfortable mm-hmm. so talk a little bit about your career trajectory then from that into i mean you're in the weather space now you know how did you make that big jump from industries yeah so um it's not actually a huge jump so okay um I was in the banking industry. Um, I took the typical like route out of college, like go get a, you know, junior manager mm-hmm. training program thing. Um, but unfortunately, at the time that I was in the banking industry, um, it was the banking crisis, the housing crisis had just happened. So, so all the banks were like merging and they didn't know what they were going to do. Yeah. Um, and all of the baby boomers were sticking around. And really, that was the crux for me getting. And, and I, to be truthful, I've never been a really great um, mid-level or low-level employee. Um, everything that I wanted to do was about thinking on the macro, you know, really working at the top level of the org. Yeah. Um, and and you know, I just couldn't do that in uh, corporate America. And, and so, um, a guy called me and he said, "Hey, do you want to take this job selling roofs?" And I was like. Sure, why not? Um, so, um, and and before this, I, I had gotten fired from just about every single job I had, mind you. Oh, really? Like, I <laughs> had a student assistant job on campus, mm-hmm. in the library. Um, Carol, she fired me from that. Um, I got fired as a student assistant in the provost. Like, I just was getting fired everywhere I would go, um, which is just, you know, like, 
I just wasn't a good employee. <laughs> I got fired from my first job, which was Arby's. Um, just got fired from all of them. Uh, were, you, you know. were you at the front of Arby's, or were you shaving the roast beef? I, the I, I was the fry cook. I did okay. not shave the roast beef, and uh, okay, I won't say anything bad about Arby's, but whatever. <laughs> um, My mom used uh, to work for Arby's down in Kentucky when she lived down there. Yeah, she, I mean, she was on the big I, shaver. Dude, it was it was nuts. Um, yeah. My favorite job was though. I worked at a movie theater, and actually, that's why I became um, and and start uh, took an accounting. Uh, degree because um, the guy that owned the movie theater that I worked at, the guy named Charlie Kingston in Madisonville, Kentucky, he um, he was a CPA, and so I started to observe that. Oh man, I've got some some cheese. Let me figure out how I'm going to uh, uh, do what he's doing. And so, and he just kind of waltzed around like he owned the place, which he did. So, so, <laughs> um, so um, yeah. I mean, that was that was the sort of trajectory. So took this roofing job and it was my first stint with pre-tax income. Like I was like, man, like I got paid as an independent contractor and I made $40,000 in three months. Um, and I was like, this is pretty good. You know, like I can keep doing this. And, um, eventually that spawned into, um, like having long conversations with the owner of that company, um, which I would eventually become their VP of operations. Um, over all 50 states um, and, and their work in the British Virgin Islands. Um, one holding company with about 28 subsidiaries, um, <laughs> which, you know, just ended up kind of falling into my lap in some ways. Um, but um, it was really this sort of ability to look at um, the landscape of, of a P&L and balance sheet and cash flow statement and see where the opportunities were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how I ended up with that job. And, um, but what was unique about that roofing company, um, that, that I worked for was that their only focus was to repair roofs for insurance companies after severe weather. And that's how I ended up in the weather space okay. because everything of everything that we did in that business was weather related. And so we had some real core challenges in that business that specifically related to, like, how do you know where a certain thing happened? How do you know what to what degree it has occurred? Um, and so simultaneously, what was happening in the roofing industry at the time is that there was a lot of new innovation. So, um, you know, there was a period of time where every industry had its own CRM. You kind of remember mm-hmm. that, like. It was a custom product for every different little thing. Um, the roofing industry was the same way. Um, there was a company called Aculinx that came out. Then about that same time, you remember that um, like Bing um, started doing side views and, and maps. Well, that was because um, this company called Pictometry and Eagle View, they had started flying planes all over the continental United States. Well, in like very, very densely populated areas so that you could get that side view imagery um, mm-hmm. or a low aerial imagery. And so what that enabled eventually was for people to measure roofs without ever getting on them. Um, and so Eagle View has since become this huge venture capital backed thing um, and become the sort of gold standard for aerial roof measurement. Um, and and um, in my role as VP of ops for that roofing company, we were actually customer number nine of Eagle View, um, and so huh. um, so we started 
playing with these different technologies. And it started to become obvious to me that there was this sort of automation revolution that was going on um, in this space. Um, and so I really started to look specifically, not at software, but at process and what processes could be fully automated, what uh, processes could be automated up toward, upwards of 70%. Um, and, and the weather sort of triage piece happened to be one of those things. Um, and so like, how do you know, like, you know, someone calls you and says, hey, I want a new roof um, and I want my insurance company to pay for it. And we're like, great, but like, wow, I'm gonna turn on my F-250 truck and drive all the way to Corbin, Kentucky from Louisville um, yeah. If there's no way that that's actually ever going to be possible. And up to that point, there was no real easy way to gain context around that. Like it took so much effort to figure out you had to overlay maps and then you try to get into ArcGIS. And I mean, it was just a nightmare. And so back in the day, the way we used to do it is we, as soon as we get, there was there's still hail swaths coming out. So you'd get um, a notification from the National Weather Service. And then I'd get a call about midnight and I was still, I was living in Louisville at the time and uh, Kevin Dennis would call me and he'd say, Hey, um, you need to go to, you know, Phoenix, Arizona. And, and so I had a, uh, uh, American express and I'd book a flight right then and five o'clock in the morning, I'd hop on a plane, go to Phoenix. And then I'd rent a car and drive around all day long, finding the cross streets. Of where we thought that hailstorm would was hit, and then we relay that data to our direct mail house, who would then send direct mail. Then they would start calling. You know, it was just crazy. Mm -hmm. um, it was a lot of energy and effort for a process that really software could solve, and so that is eventually what we did. Yeah. So, so the main the problem you're solving is getting to information. Uh, you're you're solving it so that you can get to information, relevant information, quickly, and then act on that information. Can you talk about, um, you know, what what specific kind of information um, are you pulling together, and and how did you connect those dots to to pull that together accurately? Well, it's what we had already been using, so we didn't really have to do any new work in terms of context. We had this sort of general thesis around data that the more of it we could get, the better off we were. Um, but we needed to bridge the divide between what we knew in terms of industry insight with the different data points that you could find. And so a simple thing like, hey, this particular roof has this type of shingle on it, and here's how we know that that's true. And this type of shingle is rated for 80-mile-an-hour winds. And so very simply, if you know that you had 95 mile an hour winds, that product wouldn't stand up to it. Because what we found out is that like the product testing is relatively rigorous. Like it's like, you know, they spend a quarter of a million dollars for a new product just to test it to make sure that they're factually correct. Um, and so um, that data had yet to be aggregated. So we did that. Um, and then combine that with, um, you know, the, the conventional data that you would, would normally think about, like atmospheric data, so radar imagery and um, sat imagery and, and all those things. 
um, and then combine it with our own sort of sources of ground truth. What we started figuring out is that as we built those data sets, we were creating new data sets on top of that that were now proprietary. Um, so now we have about 38 different data sources that we use, some mm -hmm. of which are created in-house, others of which are um, public in nature, um, and some of which are boutique uh, firms that we purchase. Um, but that all really helps us get to, okay, do we believe this particular property has been damaged by two-inch hail? And what's the likelihood that this particular insurance carrier will pay for this loss? Yeah. So, so if I am your consumer, I go to the website, which is weathercheck.co for everybody to check out. Um, and I decide that, that I want to sign up as the consumer, you know, what, what is my experience with the service? You know, what does it give me? Could you kind of explain it from that perspective? So, so we are not a one size fits all application. A lot okay. of times the consumer that we're looking to talk to is normally um, an individual who is either about to have a severe weather event mm -hmm. or who has had a severe weather event impact them. Um, and, and really what that search volume is doing is it is helping us to better triage, like what's the sort of um, awareness in geography um, and so your search on our site tells the carrier that hey like people are actively concerned about their property mm -hmm. or they're actively monitoring their property and so they're going to know the moment in which they you know their policy uh should be utilized um and this is a a, a relatively disruptive premise because up to yeah. this point when you buy homeowner's insurance nobody ever tells you when to use it Right. And yeah. the biggest provision that it covers is hazard losses. So windstorms, tornadoes, ice storms, all of these different things. Um, and so when when WeatherCheck started, it was we're really challenging sort of conventional wisdom around should should an insurance carrier really engage its insured person um, with mm -hmm. good information and good data. Um, and so that's really what's groundbreaking. But but it doesn't stop there. It really, so, so now, I, you know, I don't know how many of you guys are homeowners, but, um, you know, Liberty Mutual, as an example, just sent out its first hail-related notifications after an event. Hey, we think you have been impacted by a severe hail event. Here's what you need to do in the next steps, right? What that does is it changes the overall equation. So whereas I was a storm contractor and I'd go out and we'd knock on doors of homeowners and we would preempt the insurance company. Mm -hmm. Now with WeatherCheck, it puts the insurance carrier in first with a first mover advantage because now it, it has been become the credible source who's communicating mm -hmm. with the insurance person, right? And so now they can kind of guide the overall conversation about who you might need to choose, what you should be doing next, to where, and 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 we can take it even more uh, to a more dramatic scenario. What shelter you should go to if you're being evacuated from your home? Mm -hmm. You know, those just are the be, sort become of a source of information for the consumer. That's right. That's mm -hmm. right. But what what we figured out, and and what we continue to explore, is that carriers really didn't have the engine for that. Mm -hmm. Right. They couldn't engage upon that level, and, you know, for the, the same reasons that you see it in every industry, like there's legacy tech and, mm -hmm. you know, 
my SQL server can't quite get it done and, you know, yada, yada, yada. I know my Fortran and, you know, uh, <laughs> there's yeah. all these crazy things, right? Um, and so that's really where we started to go. Simultaneously, we equally have regulators telling insurance carriers, um, hey, you know, you guys need to be more responsive to your insured. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that sort of tide and pressure has really worked to our advantage as we kind of help to service carriers and uh, um, institutional property owners. Yeah. So you kind you kind of answered my next question then with with that those last couple points because my question was going to be if if I'm now the the insurance carrier, why would I want to inform the people I'm insuring about damage because then I have to spend money, um, but you know the the sense of the you know being able to provide them with information which then is a differentiating factor, um, and also regulations and and regulators looking into the industry I can see all of that combined makes you guys a, a perfect kind of solution for those providers. Yeah. I mean, it's really one of these things that, um, you know, there, and, and don't get me wrong, there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of really having this conversation with carriers because you do hear them say to you, Hey, we don't want to chase down those claims, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but simultaneously, um, the inverse is also true. There are instances where carriers are paying for things that they, in our opinion, shouldn't be paying for because they actually don't aren't legitimate. Um, And so um, and and in the instances that they are doing those things, um, they really should get credit for their goodwill to their insured person, um, Mm -hmm. because unfortunately, the insured person believes that they're getting what they're owed or what they're due um, and they don't see themselves as being kind of blessed <laughs> by the carrier um yeah. you know just for being having such a long relationship or whatever that might be right and so those are the sort of scenarios that we really have to educate um carriers through um as they kind of think about this new convention the other piece is that we have always took a very very strong approach um we knew every single and, and to this day still know every single property that's severely damaged by hail throughout the entire continental United States. Um, That's a very powerful data set. And so we were not very shy about saying, look, we will monetize this in whatever way we need to. So either you get on board or Mm -hmm. the roofing industry will buy it. Like, you know, like, I'm sorry, (laughs) we're in a capitalistic economy you do the exact same thing. And so we weren't very shy about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and in turn, that means that you need to make some decisions relatively quickly, right? And so, um, which ultimately contributed to our earlier success, which was like signing large contracts with carriers very, mm-hmm. very early on. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing leverage. <laughs> that's a good, good strategy there. Um, so talk about, you just mentioned that you track a lot of hail data. What are some of the other data sets that you're collecting that are weather related? Well, so all of them, um, okay. we don't publish all of them to, um, to the general public. So the threshold for us is really, really high. Like we're trying to make a damage determination or a damage prediction, mm-hmm. um, around specific properties. Um, and, and, and ultimately, so that the end user is enabled to make some decision. So 
we may tell you that we believe your property is damaged, but it might not mean that you're actually going to file a claim. It might not actually mean that you're going to take any action. It's ultimately up to the user to decide. But what we're trying to do is empower them with really, really great information. And so um, one of the uh, perils that we have in uh, uh, beta today is flood data, um, specifically mm -hmm. um, river and oceanic flooding. Um, um, so flash flooding is not really um, included in that yet, um, but we're working on that. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the next, you know, I would say a month to three months, you're going to see uh, us roll out, um, you know, flooding as a, as a risk factor. Um, and then we're working on some things that are a little bit lighter, a little bit easier um, as we continue to move out of the uh, really uh, as we eat most of the insurance sector, um, really starting to look at new verticals, um, and the next of which is mortgage um, as that next vertical. So that's smart. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A lot, a lot of this data you had mentioned, you, you guys are the first to really bring it all together in one place and use it super effectively. So that brings with it, you know, a lot of thought leadership. You had mentioned that you're going on the speaker circuit. Talk about your, your, you know, how you approach thought leadership and the importance of it, uh, from your opinion. Well, I, you know, uh, thoughts are like, you know, uh, people's ears. Everybody has to. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's really, I, I try not to profess too much, you know, like um, it, I certainly have a, a way of thinking about um, the insurance industry, specifically property and casualty, um, that I believe to be probably somewhat unconventional and atypical, um, but um, don't normally give my opinion unless somebody asks me, <laughs> <laughs> because, um, because the truth is, is that um, the users end up telling the future. You know, like, it doesn't really matter what I say or what I think about a particular topic. I might be able to call it. I think I'm right. But mm -hmm. what's really going to prove it out is whether or not consumers believe I'm right, right? Whether or not insureds really put pressure um, to build new product, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that's already happening. And I think, um, I think we see that in so many other sectors as well which is like, oh, it doesn't really matter whether you can call the financial crisis or not. It really matters that you have a good pulse on what your user thinks about something. And so um, I, we just went through a uh, planning session with our entire team this morning mm -hmm. um, for almost, oh gosh, it's, it takes forever. It's like six hours. But um, we were talking about this very thing, about revealing the user data. Um, even the ability to contact the user so that you can get that feedback. Um, you know, uh, we had just had a huge spike in um, uh, user traffic, um, specifically related to um, agents and independent agents and brokers, something that we really didn't see coming. Um, we didn't really have any insight on it. Um, but what became incredibly important was to get on the horn with all of them and figure out what was it that really made you spend money in this moment? What, mm -hmm. what did you see? What did you hear? Because as much as I might know um, about a particular area, there's somebody who knows more. There's mm -hmm. always somebody who 
has a different perspective. And so really thought leadership is about the ability to hear, um, not as much about the ability, in my opinion, um, to call it. Yeah, I love that. That is uh, an interesting perspective. And I think you guys are in a really unique spot where uh, it just makes so much sense. And it's almost it sounds like it's gone viral. You know, you had mentioned that you had that huge spike. And all it took was you said, you know, before we got on air was one post from an influencer and you got that huge spike in in users. I think that just is a testament to your product and what you've put together and how much sense it makes and the need for it. So uh, I think that's an interesting perspective on thought leadership and it makes a ton of sense for you guys. Well, uh, you know, like it was so interesting because I, you know, uh, YC will tell you, like, stay close to your user. Stay really, really close. And so... Um, I was on the horn today, like talking to agents, and and I I can't remember Cheryl's last name, but she um, owns an agency um, in I think somewhere in the Midwest. And I said, you know, hey, what was it like? Like, why why did you feel the need to, you know, go ahead and sign up and get started? And and, and we're talking about with no prompting, like no, nobody talked to them. They did not complete a form. They went online, did it all themselves. I mean, kind of amazing stuff, and um, which is atypical from trying to onboard carriers, mind you. Um, it takes a lot of work to get that done. Um, and she's like, it's just a great program. It makes complete sense. And, you know, it sometimes it's just the obvious thing, right, that that everybody's like, oh, well, I get that. And and But the, at the in, inverse of that is that, when you go to raise money, like, well, what's your moat and what's this and what's that? And it's like, mm-hmm. like, dude, like, just get the users. Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, um, I, I think the pop culture term right now is like secure the bag, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, like, just secure the bag. I don't know what else to tell you other than like sign up users, you know, get the money. Like, and, and then, everything else will begin to work itself out. You'll figure out other pieces and other components as -hmm. you keep working through it, you know? For sure. So you kind of, you touched on where I wanted to transition to next. We've talked all about the industry and the product, but let's talk a little bit now about the, the operational side of things and your entrepreneurial and business building journey. So you started in Louisville, you went through YC. I mean, let's, let's start at the beginning there. You know, why, why Louisville? Why did you not uh, go somewhere else or go to the coast to start a software company or, a, you know, a tech company like a lot of people would? You know, like I, I have this thing about legacy. Like mm-hmm. I just, I just love the notion that there's a road in a state named after my last name. Like, you know, like I, I'm not so sure that uh, even Musk has that or Bezos, right? <laughs> and so like For you real? can't trump 200 years, right? Like you might be super wealthy. You might have ha- have had a huge exit. But I think the thing that really is a huge differentiator is the ability to use what you got. Like see, the great thing about Silicon Valley is they're just using what they have. They yeah. have outsized tech talent mm-hmm. they're using that like and i'm like okay well then i'm in louisville kentucky i'm gonna use what i got right mm-hmm. i know how to be nice to people i know how to get indoors that nobody else can get into <laughs> right 
yeah. um, and build relationships with people. Like you would be shocked at the sheer number of people. Like access was always really, really easy in Louisville. That was one of the reasons. So, you know, I, I you know, thanks to President Ramsey at the University of Louisville I, and Mitch McConnell, I was able to like go and be a, a, a distinguished guest of the uh, Obama inauguration, right? Mm-hmm. And that was in me sending them an email and just asking, hey, can I, can I, is there any way y'all got an extra ticket? A brother can roll to the inauguration, <laughs> you know? And um, they're like, sure, yeah. You just gotta, you know, document the whole thing, write a paper, and yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, like, first black president of the United States, all that was because I had a degree of access. And even to this day, if you're talking about, you know, this CEO or that CEO or, you know, um, it's very, very easy to get to them. I, I'm lucky enough to now call a lot of them friends. Um, and that's huge. The ability mm-hmm. to do that. Um, and that played really well as we went to YC because, you know, like where uh, a lot of our cohort had extremely sophisticated technological minds, they didn't have relationships, yeah. right? And so, so you know, you could build the best thing, but the truth is, is that you're still going to have to figure out how to sell through. You're still going to have to figure out how to develop relationships with people. Um, and so, you know, some of the interaction today, as an example, like, I don't know the, you know, I, we use a lot of software. I mean, a ton of it. Um, I can't remember the last time that a CEO or a founder of one of those software companies picked up the phone and called me directly. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, some of them are further along, but some of them are still very early. Um, and so, to me, it's like that's what what sometimes Kentucky has over others is this ability to really kind of understand people, know how they work, um, and apply the touch in the right place that moves them on down the path. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the ability to sell through very early on was a byproduct of that. And so I don't discount it, right? Um, and so I'm bullish on the fact that we have something that other people don't have. Um, and so we just keep doing that. Um, now, mind you, I did go get one of the most um, sophisticated software developers I've ever met. Um, and <laughs> it turned out he uh, is just a savant, you know, um, yeah. Jermaine Watkins my co-founder and CTO. And I mean, uh, he kills it, you know, how did you get in touch with him? Uh, we were in undergrad together. So, um, and I didn't even know he was a developer. He actually started to help me in the roofing business, build out a national landing page strategy, um, across, um, the top 50 metropolitan markets. But, um, uh, you know, the, um, he's, he's so good. In fact, that, you know, AWS wants to write about what he's done, you know? Um, those are the sort of things that like, you just don't find everywhere. And so, um, but that was sitting right here in Kentucky. Like that wasn't, you didn't have to go far. We didn't go, so, and, and, and call it, you know, divine providence. But I, I think, you know, God told me one day, he was like, look, like everything that you need is always nearby. And so up to this point, like we don't, we don't recruit from the Bay Area. We don't recruit from New York. We we really pull on our on our network, um, and we continue to do that. And that still has um, served us really, really well. Um, obviously, there's a point where that 
um, is going to run out. Um, and we're preparing for that. But as of today, um, everything that we've needed has been uh, within arm's length. That's amazing. You, this is so densely packed with stuff that just resonated with, I know, myself and the rest of the middle tech team because you're the exact type of person and story we're trying to you know, highlight. The fact that you want to stay here and build that legacy is exactly um, what we're trying to do with Miltech. You know, we're trying to highlight these people that are doing amazing things, not not just out of uh, sheer wanting to make money and build a product, but because that they want to leave a mark on on this region of the United States. You know, all the news is always about the coast, and um, it, it's special that you want to stay here and, and really build out a legacy here. And to your point of, you know, having a certain persona and um, personality about the region of, you know, connectedness and hospitality, we have yet to be turned down by anybody that we've asked to be a guest. And I think that's special. Um, I think that that would definitely not be the case in, uh, on the coast because I, I lived out in LA for, you know, nine months and then got to experience what that lifestyle was like. And while it had definite, you know, advantages to the pace of, uh, pace of life and, um, you know, progress. It didn't have that homey feeling that um, I've always had here in Kentucky. Growing up in Kentucky, a really small town in Kentucky, I ultimately really wanted to come back to Lexington and help build. You know, not only my legacy, but this region's legacy. And and you know, you just kind of perfectly uh, put that in your own words. And definitely appreciate that. And I want to thank you for that. Um, yeah. And yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, I you know, I just say like. I'm certainly still gone, like pretty much all the time. So I don't want to give anybody <laughs> the impression that like I'm like like a hold up in 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 the holler somewhere. <laughs> That's not the hey, like like mostly like Sunday through Friday, I'm typically out somewhere in the country, um, doing something like um, talking to some carrier, and it's not always San Francisco. It's not always New York. It's sometimes Peoria, Illinois, or you know, Norman, Oklahoma, or, you know, some, some small little town where there's a mutual insurance company that I have to be talking to. So, um, it doesn't really matter. I think the, and we talked about it early. We, and I think I was just on the Metro start podcast a few weeks ago and they were like, you know, like it's about being locally minded, but globally relevant, right? Like, you're going to have to go. You're going to have to get out. You're going to have to beat the streets. But you can come back home. Like, everything's only a plane right away. Mm-hmm. That's just it. Yeah. So how did you get connected with Y Combinator? Talk about how that came about and what that journey was like for you. Lord, Lord. Uh, <laughs> so we applied four times. Mm-hmm. And the last time, believe it or not, like, and this is like, how I come kind of accepts everybody. I, I'm convinced of it. Like the last time, like I had, you know, you just kind of get to this point where you're just applying. Now we had always said, like, we're not really going to apply to any other startups. We applied to one because there was a strategic customer relationship located in their city. We got into that one. And it was sponsored by Singularity University. Um, but YC was really all, and we had gotten a sort of Skype interview Every single time, you know, Um, but we never kind of made it to the in-person interview. So this last time, um, Jermaine and I were out at a conference in SureTech, which now I'm speaking at, um, which is crazy. Nice. 
the largest intertech conference in the world, 7,000 attendees. Um, you know, uh, he, he's like, we're like out there meeting folks, having a great time. And I'm like, oh shit, I forgot to apply. And I don't know if I'm going to use uh, profanity here, but <laughs> yeah, we you know, swear all the time. <laughs> you can, yeah, you can beat that out. Um, uh, I forgot to apply. And so I saw a tweet from Michael Sabell that was like, hey, it's okay if you're late, just apply. You, you'll have less of a consideration, but you know, good luck. So I went on, I applied. We did the little video in our hotel room. I always tell the story about like everybody asks me, so why why Y Combinator? Venture capitalists from around the country ask you this all the time. Like, why'd you choose Y Combinator? It's overblown, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And I'm like, who doesn't want to go to Harvard though? Like it's the Harvard of all startup accelerators. It yeah. takes 1.4% of its applicants. <laughs> like mm -hmm. you can raise a million dollars on demo day. Um, we applied. Eventually we got the, uh, so Michael Sabell, the last three times we applied, he, he interviewed us uh, via Skype every single time. And so I remember like he came on screen and you know we were telling him about the company. Uh, the, the second, the second time he interviewed us, like, I got so um, starstruck that I really just fumbled all the words. Like I was like, "Oh, it's it's Michael, uh, you know, Twitch, social game, you know." <laughs> uh, and so um, we knew we weren't getting in that time. Uh, but <laughs> the third, the, the final time, he's like, "Wait, haven't I heard of you guys before?" And I was like, "Yes, you have." <laughs> <laughs> That. So eventually we got the offer email. Hey, we want to invite you out to uh, Mountain View, California for the in-person to meet with some of the partners. Um, um, our partners were um, Aaron Harris, um, who founded Scribed. Um, and then, oh my God, I always forget this guy's name. Um, he was Which employee guy? number one of Yahoo. Uh, he's employee number one of Yahoo. Um, and uh, I, he's also friends of uh, a former Kentucky startup, Codable, which they're doing amazing things. They're now based in Mountain View. Um, John Mattingly and Gretchen Huebner. Uh, um, actually, weird connection there. I bought a laptop from them as they were moving to Mountain View, uh, which was my <laughs> first book. We, really weird stuff. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, so we get there. Um, eventually, um, you know, we get the call post um, interview and Aaron says, listen, hey, we want to make you uh, an invite to be to join the winter 2019 class of Y Combinator. Um, get back to uh, Mountain View in the next 30 minutes because we're going to have a session. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, so like we, you know, rushed back to uh, the YC offices and mm -hmm. uh, really met you know, some early part of our batch, which had, I believe, 205 companies within it, um, which was crazy, but yeah. um, amazing how good they were. Um, I will tell you that there were a few companies that were acquired before they even got to the batch. Um, mm -hmm. um, uh, I think Brex picked up one, and there was another company that was acquired. I can't remember exactly. Um, and, you know, just really created this amazing network you know yeah. um you know uh, you know when i want when i need something um it does the exact same thing that i can do in kentucky 
which is I can pick up the phone and call a CEO of Humana or, you know, Brown Foreman or Tempur-Pedic. But I can now do something very similar to heads of product or founders in the Bay Area who are building really, really great companies there as well. For sure. And that's something that I wanted to ask about specifically when it comes to YC. For for those who don't know, it's kind of like the startup accelerator. Like you said, it's it's the Harvard of, you know, kind of entrepreneurial programs and, and bringing your company to the next level. And, you know, you go through the whole program and then there's the demo day at the end where you pitch to all kinds of potential investors, potential partners, you know, whatever it is. Um, but what I've heard from, you know, every side of of that that aisle from, you know, reading books and listening to podcasts about it, it's it's almost the the situation that you're in of being around all those talented people and having, you know, potential investors look at you while you're going through the program, not just at demo day, that is probably more valuable than actually getting the chance to pitch at demo day. So could you speak at all to you know, just that environment that you were in for however long the, the program is, however long you were in it. And then could you compare that, um, you know, back to Louisville, the tech environment? And then if there's any kind of, I'm sure there is a difference, but what are some of the biggest differences that you recognize? Um, I think some of it is, it's certainly a cohort, right? Yeah. Like the network is very well respected. The founders themselves actively respect the network itself. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not so sure that a YC style thing can't be duplicated. Um, I do think that we have to get to a point where we um, give the things that are prestigious the um, sort of pedigree they deserve, right? So like, when 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 you get to Kentucky, it's like nothing matters. Like pedigree doesn't matter. N none of the legacy doesn't matter. Um, it's really like we have a habit of just trying to pick who we like, um, and and really sometimes ignoring the sort of meritorious work that's been done, right? And so um, that to me is one of the distinct differences i do think that um so so obviously founders who have already exited a previous company do very very well in the bay area um mm -hmm. obviously folks who have gone to stanford and harvard and mit and yale and princeton do very very well cornell um you know they do very well there um mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that others don't, right? So, like, I didn't get the sense that the, the, the biggest challenge that I ran into and we ran into was once you got to the investment community, there was no hurdle in terms of dealing with our peers who went to Harvard and Stanford and all those great places because we found out that we could see differences. Really where the challenge comes is when you go to get investment capital is because the the pattern matching is so strong. Um, yeah. You're being pattern matched for against you know what they've always invested in, mm -hmm. um, and so um, so we have always built the company in such a way that we built it where as if the you know venture capital would never come. Eventually, it did, but you know we just built it that way so that 
you know, like we could always say, screw you. Yeah, D, I wanted to ask you a question real quick. So I knew uh, you went through the Awesome Inc. Fellowship Program. Would you be able to speak a little bit about your experience with that and the, the things that you learned and compare that to uh, YC a little bit? It, you know, like, I don't know that there's any real comparison because it's not the same type of program. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there is a roadmap to be followed. So, um, and I always talk about this. So like we started out by applying for a nucleus grant in Louisville that was offered by the University of Louisville Foundation. Um, it awarded $75,000 for a good idea. They gave you some space and um, you had to spend your own money in order to unlock theirs. And so we started that, helped in terms of getting an early investor. Um, and then we applied to the vote awards in Louisville, um, which came with a $20,000 gas prize or 25,000. I can't remember how much. Um, and that came with some, some awards. And then eventually we went on and competed as, uh, uh, some hackathons and won those and then moved on into some other sort of awards and things of that nature that really kind of painted the early path for us um to keep validating the idea to live to die another day um you know and so or not die at all which is what i'm hoping for um and so um that was really kind of awesome inc played a really really important role in that trajectory because it was another point in which we could you know, attach our, our, you know, uh, bow to for a bit and say, okay, we're going to sit here and we're going to learn and we're going to get nurtured and have some, you know, real good conversations about like what we're thinking about doing in the business and how we're moving forward and some early accountability. So one of the things that the fellowship does is it really does give you a level of accountability around, Hey, you said you were going to do this and it's a week later or it's a month later and you only did these two things. And that for a year's time was really, really great. It really was. Um, it really mattered. I actually came to miss that sort of interaction with Keith McMahon and those guys, you know. Um, and so um, it's something that I would absolutely recommend. But I think it is sort of one path or one step in that overall path to really growing, um, you know, an outsized growth uh, company in Kentucky. Yeah, awesome. Makes sense. So, so awesome meets in Lexington, Kentucky, and you had a great experience there. Is there anything like that in Louisville? And can you speak to you know the Louisville community and how they've supported uh, supported you guys along your your journey? You've, you've kind of spoken about it uh, here and there, but you know, speak directly to that. You know, I would say that early on, we didn't feel so good about it. I, I'll I'll just be completely honest and transparent about uh, the Louisville community. It, felt as though um, we were told we were wrong early on because we always wanted to build a big company. Like it wasn't, we never were questioning that. Like, like, okay, we're going to do this thing and we're going to become worth a billion dollars. And yes. And today we're sitting at a $20 million valuation, larger than any other company in, in our sort of cohort of companies. Um, in Louisville, obviously, there's a Pellis Pharmaceuticals and Lucina and all those who have been around much longer. Um, but we have surpassed them in overall value because it was always our North Star to build something that was prepared for outsized growth. And so aligning 
that line of thinking with people who are, uh, I would say, relatively unfamiliar with what it looks like to raise a large round, what it looks like to go acquire customers, what it looks like to do all of these things that you're required to do when you're running an early stage company um, was discouraging. You know, entrepreneurs have a tendency to be relatively illicit um, mm. in their pursuit of things, right? And so um, I think our culture sometimes banishes them to the sidelines in some ways until they're successful, <laughs> right? <laughs> until, they ha until they do something notable. And then we're like, oh, well, maybe we should take them seriously. And so, you know, Awesome Inc. has a wall full of those people, right? Yeah. Like, um, and so we, we in some ways need to learn from our, our past in a, in a new way. Like, hey, like, like, you discounted all of these people, too, and look what they built as a result. Now, are they illicit? Maybe just a little bit. Like, you know, are they going to be your best bud? Probably not. Uh, but they are the individuals that communities need to continue to further economic growth. Um, and so, so that was, uh, that was kind of where we were, like, um, uh, you know, like I remember distinctly somebody told us that there was no way that you were going to, uh, generate $5 million in revenue in your first two years. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. you know, like there's no way it, it's taken these companies this long to do it. And I was like, well, what's that have to do with me? Like, I don't care. I don't yeah, care how I think, long it took I, them. I think it's really important, you know, to point out uh, what what this region could do better, especially Louisville, Lexington. I think it's great that, you know, you have this perspective. Do you think that it's an attitude problem? Do you think it's an experience problem? Try to pinpoint, if you can, like what exactly is going on that you kind of got that feeling that maybe you weren't so supportive. Uh, it's, it's a people problem. Like sometimes we have the wrong people in the wrong jobs. Um, and by virtue of doing that and not being really honest about like what people are really good at. And this is just culture. Like it's where, it's where I believe San Francisco and New York beat us is that the culture tends to be transparent enough about the work or what trying, what they're trying to accomplish that you get there sooner. Right. Hey, yeah. you're not good at this. Like you really probably shouldn't be talking to entrepreneurs. Right. Like <laughs> those are those are the sort of that those are the sort of bits of feedback mm -hmm. that you, I don't think those things aren't happening, um, and so um, a lot of our founders end up spinning their wheels a bit with people who they really shouldn't spend that much time talking to, right? They should really just go build their thing, um, read the YC website, do what it says. Yeah. And then just move forward, you know, um, um, and, and, and hit the milestones, right? So, yes, go get a vote award. Yes, go join the Awesome Inc. Fellowship. Yes, do all of those things. But really don't pay so much attention to what you hear um, because um, um, there's a lot of bias in that, in, in that feedback. And so and you have, to, you have to do the same thing with, with uh, venture investors eventually. Like some of what they're saying is sometimes noise, right? Like you, you take the meat and spit out the bones is how we <laughs> say it in the country. But, you know, that's yeah. the deal. 
So we always like to end the podcast with a forward-looking statement, and you jumped into a, a little bit of it there. You know, there there are a lot of great things about Louisville and about Kentucky in general that are, have really benefited you, um, and there are some downsides. But but looking forward, where do you see the the region going in regards to technology startups, in regards to entrepreneurship in general, and then how do you see yourself and WeatherCheck being a part of that? Well, let me just go back and say, you yeah, know, yeah. like the, for the downsides in, in Louisville, there aren't people sleeping on the street every single day, shooting themselves up with needles. And, you know, like the, the dichotomy between San Francisco and what it says it's about and what it says it believes and how mm-hmm. it treats its people is enough for me to say I'm moving back home. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like that is the reality. You know, if you're, you know, having lived there now for three months and still having a place there and going back once a month, um, it is the thing that to me is like, like all of this wealth, all of these resources, and you all, you all let people sleep on your streets, and you all, mm-hmm. you know, let people be addicted to drugs and yeah. scrounge around in trash for food, and um, when you don't have to do that, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a weird dichotomy to me um, and one in which I just don't think, I think Louisville and Kentucky at large have become relatively compassionate cities um, yeah. aside from it's sort of nuancy politics that um, eventually we'll figure out how to address. But, um, you know, like for me, the sort of forward looking statements are about um, the future and really saying, okay, well, Mm-hmm. Um, it's really important to me that, you know, over the next 10, 15, 20 years, that the, the visions that I have in my head for, for the block that my company is housed on today um, look that specific way. And mm-hmm. as long as we continue on the sort of trajectory that we're on right now, I think that's a comp- that can be accomplished, right? Um, because there's an environment right now where, um, people want to see things happen. And to me, it's like, just do it. Like, there's no, there really aren't as many hindrances as we think they are. There aren't as many negative things out there against us or negative forces um, out there against us as they used to be. Um, and so that's that's my perspective on Kentucky. I'm bullish on it. I like it here. Um, having just spent the weekend in Nashville, um, you know, I was really asking myself the question, what is the distinct difference between what Nashville has done and what Louisville could do. And it is really a a change in mindset. What do we believe about our future? Well, I believe that it's going to be bright. And Mm -hmm. I believe that um, a lot of folks will eventually get out of the way um, and let growth happen. And can you dive into that a little bit more? What, what mindset do you think is different in Nashville versus Louisville? I, I think the mindset around who we think should win and who we think should lose I think Kevin Bramer or Keith Bramer, I can't remember, uh, CEO of Lucina House, he talked about it at the Louisville Healthcare CEO uh, Council recently, and I, and I think it was in Insider Louisville where I read it, which he was mm-hmm. like, there's people in this room who believe that I should fail. And those sort of bold statements, are, and, and I, I don't believe that that's not true, I think that probably is accurate. There are probably people who um, don't want to see him win. That seems strange to me. Uh, <laughs> and so... The future has to be painted with people who really don't have such an investment in animus, but mm-hmm. have an investment in the good 
in people, the good in what Kentucky has to offer, um, the good in what people are trying to accomplish, whether that's in the hemp industry, whether that's in tech, whether that's in um, healthcare, um, we really have to be for one another. For sure. Hey, we want to thank you again for coming on. This has been an amazing conversation. Yeah, man. It's, it's always my pleasure. Um, you know, like I said, I'm bullish on all, all, my old Kentucky home. So i um, always excited to join you guys. And then one more time, where can people learn more about WeatherCheck and, you know, what do you want the listeners to do? Yeah, so weathercheck.co. Listen, if you're an insurance agent uh, or broker in the property and casualty space, you need to hit us up. So we're um, working on some new things specifically for um, that particular vertical. I'm really excited about the things that independent agents and brokers are doing. And I think we've got some tools that fit you guys super, super well. And here's what's even cooler is that they're free to you. Uh, just a little bit of your time. That's all we need. That That's the only cost. Uh, so you, you can't beat free. You you can't beat free. But like the truth is, you're going to have to give us something in return, which is some <laughs> advice and some feedback on, on what we can do for you. For sure. Just a little <laughs> non-monetary price. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a little nominal. A little something. Something. Yeah. Information for information. Do it, people. Weathercheck.co. <laughs> <laughs>